This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. My guest this week is Dr. Sheila Cassidy. She's a retired hospice doctor who worked for over 20 years with cancer patients in England. She now works as a psychotherapist in Plymouth, England. She's a writer, a broadcaster, and a preacher. She's learning to be an artist, and her most recent book is Made for Laughter. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you, Anne. It's nice to be here. Our subject today is a difficult subject to talk about, obviously. It's the subject of torture. And I wondered if we could start by having you tell us the story of um, what happened to you the night you were arrested, maybe a little bit about why you were in Chile to begin with. Sure. I went to Chile really to increase my experience of medicine because it was quite difficult to get a job as a surgeon if you were a woman in England at that time. And so I went to Chile and I'd been there for four years and I was asked one day by a priest if I would treat a wounded revolutionary and I did that and unfortunately I was discovered and arrested at gunpoint in the house of some Irish missionaries and they shot the maid dead and they took me off and I was tortured off and on during the, during the whole of one night uh, because they wanted to know the names of the priests who'd asked me to treat him. Mm. And um, I know you've written about it. I can, I'm aware of my own hesitancy to ask you if you might tell us a little bit more about um, what kind of torture they used and what that was like for you. Sure. Well, I was arrested at this priest's house and they took me off to put me in the car they blindfolded me, they slapped my face, which in a funny way hurt a lot because it was so gratuitous. Mm -hmm. I think I didn't mind being hurt if they were angry, but that was just, you know, that hurt more than most things. Mm -hmm. And then when I got there, they told me to take my clothes off. And I said no, because I'm quite a shy convent school girl. And um, they then ripped uh, my shirt, started to rip my shirt off me. And I still actually have a pur purple cotton shirt with a, a ripped button. Mm. And they, when I was completely naked, they tied me to a, the bottom of, a, of a, um, a set of iron bunks, you know, that you'd have in a kid's school or something. And um, the first thing they did was to torture me with electric shocks here and there over my body. And then... I managed to lie to them quite a lot and we went off on a journey around the city looking for this imaginary person that I'd created who I'd said had asked me to treat the mm. guy. And um, then when they discovered that I'd been lying, they brought me back and this time they tortured me with electrodes in my vagina, which caused the most enormous pain and they mm. turned the voltage up. And whereas before I'd been able to concoct a story in between the shocks. They then did this so much, what the Spanish call enseguida, one after another very, very quickly, that it was completely impossible. So all I could do was tell the truth when they stopped the shocks. Mm -hmm. It was impossible, as I know you wrote in your book, to even begin to think about anything. Yes, no, because the shocks, in a sense, sort of, you know, took over my whole body. Yes, literally. And so then, after you had told them the truth, did it stop? What happened then? Um, they didn't really believe me, and they went on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And then they went away to um, verify the information, and they, um, they left me naked on this bed, 
And then a doctor came along and told me I'd be much better if I, you know, answered their questions. They did a sort of good by good guy, bad guy thing. It was a doctor. Oh yes, it was a doctor. Yes, he said you know that my heart would couldn't stand too much, uh, which was quite scary. And then I was dressed and taken before a colonel, you know, very high up rank ranking military man. Um, who he, it was quite funny actually because I think it was the first time they realised that I was telling the truth because they um, asked me why I treated this guy who was on the run, which is you know, why why they were torturing me. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, you know, I'm a doctor. I would treat him. And they said, would you treat me? And I said, yes, of course I'd treat you. And they were absolutely gobsmacked, really. Mm, they weren't expecting. Yes. Yeah, so so you'd surprised them so much they actually started believing you. That's right, yes. Yes, and so then after you'd told them the truth, did they leave you in peace? What what happened next? I was taken, I was very wobbly by then, mm. and I can remember them taking me to the lavatory, and I reached to the tap to have a drink, and they shouted at me, don't drink, you'll die, or something like that, which was again was very, very scary. And yes. I still don't quite understand why they wouldn't let people you know, drink afterwards, maybe they got cerebral edema or something. Um, and then they took me back to a little room where there were three other girls. And that was mm. the beginning of the most amazing relationship with some young Chilean women who had also been tortured. Yes. You write in your book about how those relationships were so, uh, became even joyous. That's even right. Everybody there had been tortured, which is such a, uh, for someone not having gone through this experience, so surprising that you would find joy in a Chilean prison. Yeah. Yes, and perhaps we can talk more about that in a minute. I'm not sure, Anne. Did I actually say why I was actually arrested? That you'd, I, you'd, you'd treated a... Yes, a, I'd been asked by a priest to treat a revolutionary who was on the run from the secret police, and I knew that if he went to the hospital, he would most certainly be um, reported to the military and that they would kill him. Yes. And so... To me, there was absolutely no uh, doubt that I should treat him, that it was part of my oath and duty as a doctor. Yes. I don't think I made that clear in the beginning. Yes, to you it was very clear-cut, it sounds like. It, uh, one of the things, there are so many things about what you've just said that are so distressing. Um, one of them being that a doctor was somehow involved. That was, there was a worse bit than that because later on of course it made me bleed whether it brought on a period or i was damaged internally i don't know but i was bleeding quite a lot afterwards yes. and i was taken to see a doctor the next day and i was blindfolded and i can remember so well looking down at his boots he had these sort of you know clean wonderful desert boots and hmm. cavalry twill trousers and and thinking you know you're so smart and i said you know i'm i'm, I'm bleeding and he said, menstruation is normal in a woman doctor. And I thought, again, that was the most incredible cruelty and lack of respect. It's funny how the business of disrespect is very important to people who've been tortured. And the stripping people naked is important. And, I mean, I was very lucky that I wasn't raped. I was kind of fondled by the guards, which I found very unpleasant mm. but a, me a large number of the women were raped and they found that immensely distressing yes 
Yes, you know, in preparing to talk to you today, I was thinking about what it is that makes torture so desperately difficult to even approach. And I was thinking about fear, and I was thinking about pain, and I was thinking about being so out of control. But it struck me that that aspect of humiliation, of being treated with such deep disrespect, is an additional piece of why we can hardly bear to think about it. Yeah, I think think that's true, yes. Yes, it, it reminds me of what you were saying about... Even that slap across the face, it was so It's unnecessary. gratuitous cruelty. That's what hurts. And I guess that mm-hmm. that's what hurts the old ladies and the old men who are mugged by these stupid boys and no boys on drink and drugs. Mm. It's being hit for no reason. I could, I could almost accept the torture when they were so completely desperate to know the names of the priest who'd asked me to treat Gutierrez. Mm. But as I say, it's the extra little bits of hurt which were harder to bear. Yes, that that does make so much sense. You, um, you've you talked in your book and you, you spoke about it here in saying that you would treat that senior official, you know, who was so surprised that you would treat him. And in the book you write about feeling as if they hadn't fully gotten to you because you did not have hatred for them. I think that's true, yes, because... In for some peculiar reason, I was able to forgive them even then. Because I, I went from three, four days in the torture center to a place of solitary confinement where I had an enormous amount of time to think and also was very frightened that they would take me back and torture me again. Yes. But that became a very deeply spiritual time because I was in quite a religious phase of my life at that time. And so I realized that the guys who did it were somehow wounded sickos, really. Mm. I think you said in your book something that the damage, that torture does far more damage to the character of the torturer than to the one I would think that's true. It's also true that I think when when I first started talking about it and also in the writing, I made a bit light of the torture, Mm. of the after effects of torture. Um, because I think I probably suffered very considerable post-traumatic stress, although at the time it it hadn't been invented. But Mm. I had many years of terrible insomnia and depression and anxiety, which I think were a consequence of that. Yes. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Sheila Cassidy about the subject of torture, and in particular, uh, Sheila's telling us about her experience of being tortured under Pinochet in Chile in the mid-1970s. So maybe this is a moment to switch to that, to the aftermath. Your book was written in 77, fairly close on after. So could you tell us a little bit about what it it was um, in the years afterwards and... um, When you say post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe you could explain to people what that was like for you. Yes, post-traumatic stress happens to people who have been very, have experienced violence or have witnessed violence. And what it was like for me was I didn't get that many flashbacks, which is absolutely sort of classical in PTSD, but I suffered a lot of fear and I began to get severe performance anxiety Initially, I, I was 
asked to lecture to universities, to church people at home and abroad in the year or so after. So I did 18 months of very, very strenuous human rights work. And, for example, I would be going to a studio to give a broadcast um, and I'd be in London, and I'd be in a taxi on my own, and the taxi would suddenly shoot down a side street. And I would immediately think that this was, that I was in the, you know, the power of the Chilean secret police and that they were taking me away to kill me or mm. to torture me. So that, I experienced that again and again. And there were quite humorous aspects to it because in between the lectures, I spent time in Devon um, at my house by the sea and I, I was starting to write Audacity to Believe. And every time I went away on a, you know, a gig, I would take my manuscript and hide it at the bottom of the waste paper basket or no, the bottom, sorry, bottom of the clothes basket um, or somewhere like that. And then, of course, I'd come back in a week and I'd say, where's my manuscript? It's been stolen. Oh. The secret police have broken in and stolen my manuscript. Right. And, of course, they hadn't. Um, but, you know, a certain amount of paranoia was. <laughs> yes, but, but really, in a way, not knowing if you were ever fully safe. I didn't think I was, and I'm, and there was quite a, a painful or a, no, or a telling moment when, that time I was actually living at Ampleforth Abbey, which is a Benedictine monastery, and I was asked to come to the United States, to talk at the um, bishops' conference, in New York, held at Maryknoll, and a friend of mine rang up the Foreign Office, to ask if they thought it was safe for me to go to the States. Mm. and um, they said, well, she's as safe there as she is in England. And I thought, great. <laughs> so, right. And also the fact that a number of different people who spoke out against the Chile, Chilean dictatorship were in fact murdered. I mean, Orlando Letelier was murdered in Washington. He had um, talked a great deal about uh, the situation in Chile. Uh, Bernardo Leighton was shot, I think, in... Argentina, and there was another guy who was shot in Rome. So I wasn't really all that safe, and I knew it. Yeah, so to call it paranoid isn't actually really doing justice to the danger that was real. Perhaps, but I think one of the ways of coping is by playing it down. Mm. You make a little joke of it, and that's part of a, as a, part of a safety mechanism. Yes. How was it, so you were giving these talks all the time, and yet among your friends and family, the people who knew you before and loved you, did they ask you about it? Did they tiptoe around it? How how was it for you in those loving relationships? Um, well, my family never mentioned one word of it. Oh. I don't think they came to any of my talks. Um, mm. I think they probably found it too hard, but I never really knew. Um, they've never talked about it since, neither my brother nor my sister, anyone. Mm. Um... My friends, I think I'd been out of England for four years. Certainly a number of friends were very good. My father, Michael Hollings, who was a priest, who was a great mentor of mine, was there when I arrived on the plane. And there was a very nice Chilean doctor, and she was good. But I don't think I had a lot of comfort from friends. I think mm. I was quite alone. Yes. And do you think that that contributed to how difficult it was? In those years afterwards? I imagine so. I think it's really, really difficult because although I managed to steel myself to speak about it in public and and in doing that I made a sort of distance between myself and the memory, um, 
I very rarely have spoken to people about to people on a one-to-one basis, and on the very few occasions I've done that, I've ended up very, very distressed. Mm. So I think I'm probably it's probably just as well that my friends didn't want to know, because I guess I didn't want to tell them. It's something. It's so unbearable a story, mm. really. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was aware. For myself, in preparing for this interview, um, this is a show about subjects that are hard to talk about. I ask about awkward subjects mm. on a regular basis. You agreed to come. Yeah. And even so, I felt a lot of my own internal sort of taboo about really asking you about it. And I think it's very similar to is for a therapist to be asking people about child abuse, mm. um, about sexual abuse or cruelty, and I do that all the time. Yes. But I guess, um, although it's painful to talk to a client about cruelty that they have experienced, again, there's this professional uh, barrier which makes it possible to do it. Mm. Hmm. Um, and it's a barrier that sounds like is only that is somewhat permeable, not fully impermeable, as you've said. Even you've you've mm. developed a certain amount of distance, and yet there's something about the one-on-one -one conversation. It sounds like that is harder to have that distance. Yes, because most of my I mean I've done quite a lot of radio talks, as you can imagine. I've done television, and I've done a lot of um, sort of theatre type performances, mm. and that is truly a performance. And I always, you know lighten it with a little bit of a joke and that sort of thing. Yes. Um, I've forgotten now what I was going to say. I was, gonna, I was asking you about how, something about how the one-to-one -one conversation, that, that professional distance is only so effective that it can be permeable in a context mm. that's maybe more intimate yes. and that that can be difficult. I guess they're clear of those. Um, yes. The only time I did it... Uh, for quite an extent, or I've done it two times, was um, actually in my own therapy. Mm. And once was with a therapist who was obviously a lot more distressed than I was, and that was pretty useless. And then I had some therapy with a psychiatrist who was incredibly sort of cool. In I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure he cared, but he was very cool. And I used to go to see him, and I used to go an hour earlier in order to feel safe and to get into the mood. And I used to draw. I had a big flip chart and some big colored um, crayons. And I used to draw a picture of the sea with a little boat in it. And in the little boat was me. And coming up out of the depths were sharks and mm. big shadows. And that was how I felt alone in this boat with terrifying things coming out of the shadows. Yes. And did you show him your drawings? Yes, I did. I don't think he was particularly interested. Um, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I was interested, though. I see. But, but another thing that happened, a couple of things I'll tell you which is quite interesting about flashbacks. One was when I was driving along the road and idly looking at a young woman with a, uh, with a pram and all of a sudden her, her half-slip fell off. I mean, nobody wears petticoats these days, but I suppose this was 20 years ago. And her, pe her, her petticoat fell to the ground. And immediately I heard inside my voice in Spanish, sacase la ropa, take mm. off your clothes. Mm. And so that was a very sort of curious connection. 
And another time when I was on my way to the to see the psychiatrist, I looked in the driving mirror and thought I could see somebody following me. And that was very, very scary. I can imagine. Terrifying. Um, and the other thing that used to happen, I spent a, a, a year and a half in a convent trying to be a nun and save the world. And um, when, during Lent and Advent, we used on Friday nights, we used to have a, a sort of starvation supper, which consisted of dry bread. And when we were in prison, we had dry bread and it used to stick in my throat until I couldn't eat any more. And I used to get so knotted up about having to eat dry bread that I'd start to get really anxious by about four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And I went to the novice miss, who was a bit of a cold-hearted lady. Um, I was going to say something else, but I won't. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And, and so the... And, and she, she didn't really believe me, I don't think. But anyway, so the cook was given instructions to provide me with a meal. And I can remember now she gave me uh, a poached egg and rice, and they were both dry, like the soles of my shoes. <laughs> oh, it was Lent. It was Lent, yes. yes. You needed but, to be deprived somehow. But, see, it was so melodramatic that nobody... Mm could cope with it and so it was better not to tell people hmm. so with that psychiatrist I'll just say before going on this is WMPG my name is Dr. Anne this is safe space we're talking about the subject of torture with Dr. Sheila Cassidy um, w with that cool psychiatrist was there the experience though of talking about it with someone that finally was healing that was helpful I don't think particularly no uh -huh. um I don't, I really don't know what made me better. I mean, I suffered from depression and anxiety off and on for the best part of 10 years. Yes. And I, I didn't get better until I was put onto antidepressants. And I mean, because my main problem was not sleeping. Yes. And I would go night after night sleeping about two hours a night. And that would make me feel extremely ill during the day. And it was very difficult to do my job. But what I wanted to talk about before we forget yes. is how much I learned from that experience about working with people who were facing death. Because I think, I mean, I lost the ability for small talk. So I don't go to cocktail parties because I haven't got any small talk anymore. But what I could do was empathize to a very high degree with people who are extremely frightened. Mm. And that meant... I think that I knew I wasn't embarrassed to talk about fear or death. I wasn't embarrassed to comfort people um, and to be alongside them in their fear. There's a there's a lovely hymn which says, "I will hold the Christ light for you in the night time of your fear," and mm. I think that's a religious sort of way to describe how it was working with dying people. Yeah, so that your experiences, you really did use them to offer something that you knew would have helped you, perhaps. Yes. Um, what was quite interesting was I met one of England's top hospice doctors when I was on my way out of the convent. And when I came into the room, he said, ah, he said, I've been waiting for you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, with your experience, you've got to go into palliative care. Mm. And he was right. And I guess I was made for that. Mm. 
How wonderful that you found a way to use something so terrible. Mm. Yes. I'm, yes. I mean, I still count myself as lucky because the experience has opened up a whole new world to me. I was a very insular person. I didn't know about foreign places. I didn't know about foreign people. In my mm. father's language, Wogs began at Calais. Um, and it really blew my mind open to the suffering of others and the reality of injustice. Yes, I was struck in your book, Audacity, to believe you write, though, at the very beginning about how, despite this experience, you came away with such a deep sense of the goodness of people, mm. which isn't intuitive <laughs> to the outsider. And I wondered if you might, perhaps in closing, tell us a little bit about that, how you came to that. I just see goodness in so many people. At the hospice, I used to see it particularly um, in the courage of the patients, in the incredible generosity of elderly men looking after their dying wives, mm. um, and of doctors staying up all night looking after people and nurses. Mm -hmm. But how about in Chile? Because you were writing that before you even worked in palliative care. You were talking about... Sure. Um, I think that there was such love among the... I was, I was in uh, a detention camp with about 100 other young women, and they were all so loving, so kind, so courageous. And Fanette, I've just been writing a new book, and the thing that I said, which I feel will cause repercussions, is that I thought that the Marxists in that camp were much, much kinder and less self-centered than the sisters were in mm. the convent. <laughs> mm. You describe an extraordinary community of all things shared in common in the prison. It was a really sort of Acts of the Apostles type group, but these were, I suppose these were left-wing young women who had, who came from middle-class homes and who had gone on field trips, if you like, to see the poor and had their minds blown open mm. because of that, seeing little children stunted in growth and dying of starvation, dying of... Uh, malnutrition, diarrhea, and these things. And they mm. were so determined to change it in their lifetime. That's always the trouble. You can change something over 200 years. But if you want to change it in your lifetime, then you're going to cause a load of trouble. Yes, yes. One last thing, um, Sheila, which is, as you know, in this country after 9-11, there is a great debate about torture. And some who in this country believe that um, it's justified with terrorists if that would protect people here and uh, I wondered what you might say to people who are seriously entertaining whether torture can ever have a role. I think it's a really difficult question and although I would say that torture is never justified I don't know how I would feel if there were a whole city waiting to be blown up and I had the man with the bomb but in general, I think I'm, I'm absolutely certain that waterboarding is torture, and I think that torture is morally wrong. Mm. But there's always that little bit inside one that says, how dare you threaten my people, my wife, my child? I'm going to hurt you. Yes. So I think it's a difficult question. Yes, I find it extraordinary that you have such an ability to understand the position of the one, of both sides. Thank you, Sheila, so much. I read your book as an adolescent, and it's had a profound impact on my life. Thank you. 
such a really a treasure to have you here today. It's lovely to be with you, Anne. Thank you. Mm. So this is Dr. Anne concluding Safe Space. Uh, if you wish to contact me in the future for requests about future subjects, email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E-W-M-P-G at gmail.com. My thanks today to Jen Hodgson for mixing the show, to Hanukkah Castle for the music, and to Jim Rao for editorial opinion. Next week, I'll have Dr. Marshall Forstein speaking about coming out. Coming up next is Caribbean Flavor with Danny. <laughs>